the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I'm Dwayne Patterson, in this week on the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Today, the classified document scandal keeps growing for President Biden. I have no regrets. Really? No regrets for jeopardizing America's national security. The administration's response has been a bit of a mess. Andrew McCarthy. They never intended for you to to know anything about this. We'll look at our virtual open border policy and the lethal costs with deaths mounting from fentanyl. 95% of the fentanyl is solely Sinaloa cartel fentanyl. And our nation's wrong-headed approach to the opioid overdose epidemic. The use of drugs is not to be acquiesced. It's not to be encouraged. All this and more. I'm Dwayne Patterson, longtime producer for Hugh Hewitt, contributor to HotAir.com, and now guest host for Hugh. Great to be with you. Catch the Hugh Hewitt Show each weekday morning live, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and on demand 24-7. Learn more at HughHewitt.com. And follow me on Twitter, at RadioBlogger. And follow this program as well at Town Hall Review. We'll start with President Biden and his administration's document scandal. After the public learned of the first batch of classified documents at Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware, we were assured that was all of them. Of course, we now know that was not it at all. We'll turn first to Greg Jarrett of Fox News, who is a guest of Sebastian Gorka. Biden's next classified documents defense may be, Corn Pop did it. So are we already moving from the it's with my Corvette to the corn pop defense, Greg. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of a whack-a-mole rebuttal every time a new classified document pops up on Joe Biden's premises. Uh, and, and, you know, every new disclosure really uh, precipitates this head-banging rationalization <laughs> from the president. At first, it was dismissed as merely inadvertent. Uh, then the second one was completely pardonable under, uh, as you know, the well-known, well-established Corvette defense. Oh, yes. Well, know it well. Know it well. Yeah. I, you know, it was stunning to me that he had the arrogance to then claim he had no regrets. No regrets for jeopardizing America's national security. And, you know, he keeps insisting over and over that he takes classified documents seriously. But the running joke is he just takes classified documents. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it didn't surprise me that one day after he claimed there was no there there, uh, the DOJ and FBI uh, find more there there inside his Delaware estate. I mean, this latest batch inside his home that we found out about on Saturday it's not just classified documents from his tenure as vice president, but the U.S. Senate, which he left 14 yeah. years ago. So for how many years, how many decades have malign actors been able to gain access 
uh, to classify documents that Joe Biden kept. If you were inside the Biden administration these past three weeks, it has to feel like a news cycle that just won't end. To understand that, we just need to state, to put it in polite terms, that the administration's response has been a mess. We'll turn now to Andrew McCarthy, former federal prosecutor and now a columnist and frequent contributor to National Review. He was a guest of Chris DeGaulle from AM 990 The Answer in Philadelphia. I don't understand how it's possible that you have multiple days and multiple reports of multiple documents. It it doesn't... It defies logic to me because I, I like the kind of the last minute. Okay, now we'll send in the boys to search and oops, here's some more. It just seems implausible. Like it, it feels like this would be much faster, much more thorough and done much earlier. This kind of, yeah, it's Tuesday. Let's give another look at the house. It, it doesn't make sense. Like if you're looking, you look and you look all at once and you look till you're done. The constant daily. Oh, here's a couple more. Here's a couple more. That's very weird at this level, Andy. Help me understand how this is possible. I think the the thing that makes it understandable, Chris, is that they never intended for you to, to know anything about this. Hmm. So, yes, this story has uh, been out there, not publicly, but it's been a problem for the administration since November 2nd when the first batch of documents, which were highly classified documents, a number of them, uh, was discovered. But you weren't supposed to find anything about out about this. Um, and we found out on January 9th, which I think was a surprise to people in the administration when CBS uh, broke the story. And as a result, because they never thought you were going to find this out, they weren't in a big hurry to address it. And they have been chasing their tails, scrambling since January 9th. If they had <clears throat> if this had become if this if they had any thought that this was going to become a public story when it first happened, then on November 2nd, when it happens, you start doing the searches right there and then. You make sure that you've uh, looked at every nook and cranny. And that way, if you're just trying to delay to get through the midterms and you know you're going to take a political hit for delaying, um, at the very least, you you now have done all the searches and you only have to disclose once, which will be terrible, but it'll be once. It'll be a, like a weak story and then, you know, People were on to the next thing. But I think what happened here is they didn't think anybody was ever going to find out about this, which is why I, I appreciate that uh, that Brett at Fox put some uh, sunshine on this, because this this story that the administration self-reported and they've been uh, transparent from the beginning is utter nonsense. They did not self-report. They have tried to conceal this to the extent they've made any uh, public disclosures. It's open to the media break stories. Um, on January 9th, when they acknowledged the CS story, at that point, they knew that there had been a second batch of documents found in the garage in Wilmington on December 20th. They didn't mention that when they disclosed uh, the administration, when they disclosed on January 9th, because it wasn't in the CBS story. So they were still hoping to keep that under wraps. And it was only when there was yet more uh, discovery and yet more media reporting that they finally had to fess up. But I think the reason that this seems like it's dribbling and, and they're scrambling and out of control 
is because the plan was for you never to find out about this. The DOJ just getting involved, you know, lately, recently, was, is that, yes, of course it's partisan, and yes, it's Merrick Garland, and yes, they don't really want to do any serious damage to Biden, and yes, they're friendly to Biden, and all those things we understand. But, um, like, it's at Biden's invitation that they get involved versus... Again, and it's, I, I hate to be tit for tat versus storming his home and rifling through things on their own. It's just it's any objective person sees the way these two stories were handled so violently different. Yeah. There, now, there were differences in the facts. But l- let me point out to people that, you know, this idea that Biden is being cooperative and he voluntarily had the Justice Department come in and search his places. People should understand it is a commonplace in law enforcement for criminal suspects who know that the government has probable cause to search their homes and their other locations to consent to the search. Hmm. You don't consent because you're a great guy and you want to invite the government in. You consent because you know that they have enough evidence to get in with a warrant if they decide to go to court and get a warrant. Okay. Uh, And if you volunteer to let them in, you can show some cooperation, which if you're trying to get leniency in the end, that that stands in your favor. Uh, And the other thing is, if you make an agreement to let them come in, you can put some conditions on it. And it may be worth their while to agree to those conditions in lieu of having to write up a search warrant and go to court and get it issued and all that stuff. So with Trump, when they they got a search warrant for him, his lawyers, for example, were not allowed to to accompany the agents from room to room to room to do the search. Right. Because they had a warrant uh, and it was they had complete control of how to conduct the search, whereas with Biden. He consented to the search, and part of the negotiation was, I'll let you guys come in to search, but I want my lawyers to go with the bureau um, to do the search. And, Chris, we can't also ignore this dynamic. Trump is a former president, which is a very exalted position, but it has no political power. On the other hand, this current investigation is against the incumbent president, and the people conducting it work for Biden. Yes. So, you know, there's obviously a very different dynamic here than there was with and Trump. Never in American history have we had a government agency raid a former president's home, go combing through a current president's private home. There, there's a tie in this country not too long ago where these events would be earth shattering. It would devastate both men and neither neither of them would have a political prayer in the future. But now we kind of talk about it like it's you're going to the dentist for a cleaning. It's bizarre to me. Yeah, I think, Chris, the explanation for that, though, is that the um, is that the political parties are not the force that they used to be in politics. Here's the deal. Like we now we've gone through three presidencies and no matter what you think of these people, um, all of them now have been accused or, or three candidates anyway, candidates and or presidents uh, in Hillary Clinton, in Donald Trump and in Joe Biden. All of them have been accused of maintaining classified information they shouldn't have and mishandling it, all of them. And I'm not really sure it's the story, by the way. I still just don't believe it. I think the Bidens, yeah. I think the Bidens and, and the Clintons are about money. I don't think it's anything to do with classified information. Yeah. I think it has to do with funneling money. Well, I, I think that the, the explanation for the Clinton homebrew server is precisely that. I think there's a lot of interplay between the Clinton Foundation and day-to-day State Department business that, they, that she was not going to want people to have a window into. So she needed to defeat the government's record-keeping requirements. So, but I think what she was trying to do is make sure there was no paper trail 
to some of the grimy stuff that she was doing. And with respect to the Bidens, like everybody keeps asking, why do you need lawyers to pack up your (laughs) office, your private office? Well, if you're Biden and you know that you're under investigation for influence peddling for there's no doubt that millions and millions of dollars went into the Biden family coffers and that the selling point was Biden's political influence. Yes. All right. So now it's November. It looks like the Republicans are going to take the House which means they're now going to have subpoena power, and they're vowing to look into all that. So obviously, it seems to me, they he brought lawyers in to do the ministerial thing of packing an office, because if the Republicans start to, when they come in, issue subpoenas that are related to repositories of Biden family business, Biden wants to be able to say, I can't give you this, it's covered by attorney-client privilege. Um, he wants to make sure the lawyers, Hillary did this all the time too, what they do is they intrude lawyers into activities that are not lawyer work, that yes. are just ministerial acts. And then when the investigators come and try to investigate it, they say, oh, no, that's a black box. It's covered by attorney-client privilege. You can't subpoena that. Let me point out, you can now get Chris Gall on the Salem Podcast Network. Coming up, the lethal costs of our open border. 95% of the fentanyl is solely Sinaloa cartel fentanyl. When the Town Hall Review returns in a moment. Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Dwayne Patterson, in this week for Hugh as he attends the meetings here in Southern California of the Republican National Committee. Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, has a pattern of assuring the press corps that our nation's southern border is secure. Or, an alternate talking point, that they are working to secure the border. But Republicans are standing in the way. But the administration's laissez-faire approach to the southern border is proving costly. Sarah Carter of Fox News has been tracking with the border and the fentanyl crisis. She was a guest of Mike Gallagher. I'm on the streets and I see young Americans, you know, uh, just wasting away the drug addiction, the crime, uh, you know, the, the, the sadness, the horror of it all. And I mean, and we're not just dealing with what we've seen in the past, you know, where we're, where we're dealing with, you know, little areas and then there's, you know, junkies or, or heroin, which is bad enough. We're looking at large swaths of Americans, like over a hundred thousand Americans who have lost their lives due to heroin and opioids. And 60% of that is due to fentanyl. And that's what the dark wars is about. It's exposing the truth. It's digging deep into these issues, you know, where we talk about the issue of fentanyl and how it's coming across the border. You know, when I was in Philly, I was talking to law enforcement officials as well. 95% of the fentanyl in Philly, in that area, is solely Sinaloa cartel 
fentanyl. And that fentanyl, those chemicals are coming from the Chinese Communist Party into Mexico. They're getting processed in Mexico. The Sinaloa cartel obviously is controlling Philly. They're moving it there. And I saw kids as young as 15, you know, on the streets, completely lost. And I got to tell you, Mike, it was... It's, it's heartbreaking, but I really want the American public to understand that we really are under a direct threat by our enemies are taking advantage of what is happening in our country and our la and the border chaos. And they see that and they're taking advantage of it. And it's not just the cartels, it's enemies and adversaries like China and others who see what is going on here. And uh, we as parents and as Americans need to stand up to it. These cartels that are bringing this, this this, this scourge into this country, this is impacting people north, south, east, west, big cities, small cities, rural communities, uh, urban centers. Sarah Carter, you cannot overstate what a scourge this is upon the land, and it doesn't feel like there's any sense of urgency from the Biden administration, frankly, to do anything about it. Right. And I love the way that you put that, a sense of urgency. I want parents to think about this because I really do believe we're going to save lives today, Mike. I really do. Every time we talk about this, I believe we are going to save a life. There are pills on our streets right now. They are counterfeit pills. They are pills that look like Adderall. They look just like oxycodone, uh, Percocets, you name it. They are out there and they are pure fentanyl. And if your child or a family member or somebody borrows a pill from somebody else or takes another person's prescription medication without really knowing where that comes from, they could die. They could die after the first pill, which is why now a lot of parents who have lost their children have, you know, are advocating and putting out there that public service announcement. One pill can kill because it will kill. It will kill. Now we're seeing children 10 to 14 years old dying from taking pills that are on the streets and the counterfeit pills. I say to myself, this isn't just an accident, folks. This isn't just an accident. You have counterfeit pills on the streets. That is murder, in my opinion. This is not somebody who is a junkie uh, sitting on the street corner. And I still think that that's somebody's child. That's someone's child. When I'm out there on the streets, when I talk to the people who are using and they tell me, you know what? I started when I was 13. I started when I was 14. This was someone's child. And now their life feels to them like it is gone. It's impossible to get off the drugs. But imagine if your high school student or your elementary or middle school child takes a pill that's at someone's house because it looks like a Flintstones vitamin or it they think it's an Adderall and the next call that you get is, uh, I'm sorry to say, but your child has passed away. It, your child didn't die of an overdose. Your child died from being poisoned. Right. And that's how urgent this is. We need, as Americans, and I, I just... It makes me want to cry, but we need as Americans, we need as to be as parents and as friends and as family members, brothers and sisters, we need to say, we're not going to accept this anymore. Right. This is a no-go anymore in our country. And that border chaos, Mike, every single time I'm down at the U.S.-Mexico border and I watch what's going on and I see the failure of the executive branch of the federal government to do its job and I see what's happening there. I have to ask myself, is this what our government wants? Yeah. 
because they got to know how bad this is getting. We have to hope that a growing number of our fellow Americans will start to speak out. We really do need to secure the border. And we need to rethink our approach to drugs. In particular, the opioids, the fentanyl, heroin, fueling the homelessness problem and plaguing our cities. Howard Husak of the American Enterprise Institute recently wrote a piece for the New York Post that caught the attention of Seth Liebson from AM 960 The Patriot in Phoenix. You open with drug overdose deaths in New York City have hit a record high, and it comes tragically as no surprise. One might say this, given the new data about the rest of the country as well. Why no surprise, sir? It's no surprise because uh, legalization or turning a blind eye to the use of drugs, not criticizing the use of drugs, is the message we're getting from our authorities, from government, from those who try to set our social norms. And so when we're not pushing back on the use of drugs, when we're not trying to discourage demand, and in fact, in many ways, encouraging demand, then we're reaping the whirlwind. Well, what what is really dismaying to me is our unwillingness. We'll look at tobacco, right? States have got hundreds of millions of dollars from a settlement with the tobacco industry, legal settlement. I won't go into the complications of how that (laughs) works. Yes, right, right. Right. But but uh, to promote abstinence from tobacco, right. to run these harrowing television ads yep. of people gasping with emphysema right. holes and in their, taking their last yeah, breath. Holes in their What's necks, the yeah. equivalent mm. with fentanyl, which killed fentanyl, heroin, drug overdoses, all of them, more than 100,000 Americans last year? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100,000 Americans. The 2,500 in New York was uh, a number higher than... Our worst murder rate going just, back in the bad old days of the 80s. I and just, yeah, go where, ahead. Where sorry. do we see any any public health uh, commercials, if you want to use that term, to say maybe you should consider not using drugs? It's not a thing. When when Ronald Reagan was president, we had the campaign just say no. Now, okay, maybe that was simplistic, but it was correct. It's the use of drugs is is a is not to be acquiesced. It's not to be encouraged. It's not a healthy choice. Why Why are we not pushing back? Why are we not connecting the dots? Do you know who supplies the drugs? The cartels in Mexico that have undermined that country. And it's our demand that's doing it. Our demand. We need to discourage that demand. It's a bad personal choice. It's a bad policy choice. It's a bad national security choice. Coming up. I don't understand why it's political, why it's quote-unquote conservative right. to try to, to save people's lives by helping them not use drugs. More with Howard Husock of the American Enterprise Institute when the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Stay with us. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. It's a look at today's most compelling stories and provides responses from key conservatives in media and politics. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to Town Hall Review, brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Dwayne Patterson, in for Hugh this week. 
As we look at this issue of fentanyl and heroin, among other drugs, taking lives, damaging lives, and leaving so many homeless and hopeless, in one sense, we should not be surprised. We are actually encouraging drug use, sometimes implicitly, but sometimes it's pretty explicit. Let's pick up on Seth Leibson's conversation with Howard Husock of the American Enterprise Institute. In New York City, you say on the test on the pilot program for these right. quote unquote safe injection sites, right. five hundred and eighty five people have registered and used the location nearly five thousand times. Right. Five thousand doses of heroin injection. Now under medical supervision. Yeah, under med- <laughs> under medical supervision. Now, what we don't have is any report on what happens to these people afterwards. Nothing. We have no report on whether they go in for treatment. We have no report on whether they are reducing their use. We have no report on whether they are going elsewhere to get additional injections. There is just no follow-up on this, correct? Well, I'm extremely distressed about that because let's say – we wanted to regard this. We'll try to be, you know, take a step back and we'll try to be uh, as fair-minded as possible about this. Uh, when you have a pilot program, you study it. Yeah. You have a control group. Right. But yet we have the 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 Surgeon General of the United States has said, yeah, these he, he's kind of on board with this kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. They haven't gone that far to to, to announce a, a federal support of it yet but he's clearly leaning in that direction so what you would have to do is to put an ankle monitor on these guys see what happens to them how many of them die somewhere else like in the street let's find out what happens to them instead they're using a a data point that makes it look good because people are using it we should be happy because they're using it right right what right Right. We're, we, right. We're, de- we're, de- we're dealing in volume here. We're trying to make, it up, uh, make up for it in volume almost. It's a sick joke on an old I Love yeah. Lucy uh, episode. But, <laughs> but, but, but Howard, the, the thing that's interesting to me about this is the why. I mean, I don't, I don't know about the profit motive here, but it seems almost as if there is a political sanction against prevention, a political uh, incorrectness, if you will, about denying drug users their addiction. I know sometimes the word shame gets thrown in here, and they're obviously saying don't be ashamed. But they certainly did it with drunk driving, and they certainly did it with cigarettes. And I guess what I'm asking, um, Mr. Husick, is what is the motive here? This should not be a political issue. It seems somehow it is. We seem to say we don't want to shame people, and if they are simply, you know, harming themselves, we don't want to arrest them or enforce treatment upon them. But as um, the novelist and street drug expert Sam Quinones put it, everyone will die who does this. They will die if not treated. What is the motive behind not giving them an abstinence or prevention message? Yeah, it, it's a very hard question, and I'm glad you asked it. Um, I, I don't understand why it's political, why it's quote-unquote conservative right. to try to, to save people's lives by helping helping them not use drugs. Right. 
Now, the, the promoters of the safe injection sites, they're basically saying it, it's no use. They're going to use drugs, so we'll, it'll be safer if we prevent an overdose. But that's such a, a you know, a give-up attitude. About nothing said, else have we ever said that. Yeah, we don't. And, and to, to get to the roots of it, I think you have to go back to the decade where so many bad ideas started, and that was the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And with, with the explosion of marijuana use at that time, uh, the 60sites decided, well, all the warnings about drugs, they all must be wrong. Yeah. That was oversold, therefore, they're all oversold. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went on a kick with drugs can't be as bad as we were told. Right, because one bad movie overdid it in the 30s, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Reefer Madness yeah, is what you're right, talking about. Right, right. But now we have, we have Reefer Madness because the Reefer is so much stronger yeah. and laced with fentanyl. Right. That's really happening. Yep. And, and so somehow that mindset of, of, you know, hedonism is okay infected our public health establishment coming up we're literally being invaded and nobody's talking about it brandon tatum on the criminal element entering through our southern border when town hall review returns in a moment Celebrating our 25th anniversary, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy invites you to learn from one of our beloved teachers, Dr. Gordon Lloyd, in a four-part webinar series titled The Roots of Political Economy, Capitalism versus Socialism. This free video series teaches foundational principles of free markets, as well as the philosophers behind socialism. Find out more at go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. That's go.pepperdine.edu slash capitalism. Welcome back to Town Hall Review. I'm Dwayne Patterson, in for Hugh. Over 1.2 million. That's the estimated number of illegal border crossings we've seen since President Biden has become president. And we know now those aren't 1.2 million good neighbors just looking for a brighter future in the U.S. Brandon Tatum, a police officer in Tucson for seven years himself, addressed the issue on his program. Terrorist watch list arrests are soaring under the Biden administration. It says arrests on the southern border of people of the U.S. on the U.S. terrorist watch list are skyrocketing under Biden administration from zero in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic to 98 last fiscal year, according to official data. So far, this fiscal year, which began in October of 2022, Customs and Border Patrol have encountered 38 Non-U.S. citizens at the southern border or at the southern U.S. border on the terrorist screening data set, also known as the watch list. The number of watch list arrests is making up an increasing percentage of border encounters data show, while a record number of nearly 2.4 million illegal immigrants were encountered last fiscal year. 2.4 million. Two. Point four million. Let's say let me just say that again. Two point four million. Let me just give you another stat. And this is just based on where I live. I live right now in the Phoenix Valley. 
So about 4 million people live in Phoenix Valley, and Phoenix is one of the largest cities in the, in the United States of America. About 4 million people live in the Phoenix Valley. You're telling me that almost half of the Phoenix Valley, one of the biggest cities in the country, our Border Patrol agents have encountered that many illegals. 2.4 million illegals encountered? You got to think, how many did they not encounter? Here's, here's another stat. It says about 1.2 million illegal migrants are known to be gotaways since Biden entered office. This means that migrants are believed to have entered the United States without encountering Border Patrol first. You add the numbers together, that'll be 3.6 million. Let's round it up to about 4 million. That's about the, the size of Phoenix, Arizona, where the illegals either encountered or not encountered at our southern border. I don't know what country people want to live in. It, see, let me just explain this. You ask the average person about these numbers, you talk to them about this, they don't care. They'll tell you what the basketball, who won the basketball game last night, but they don't know nothing about the Border Patrol. They don't know nothing about the border. They know nothing about all these illegals getting into our country. And then you got to think, they said 1.2 million illegal migrants who they call gotaways. How many people are terrorists in that group? We would never know because they had no encounter with anybody at the border. That could be 10,000 people. Look at what happened on 9-11. You would argue that was you know, 15 people. I don't know. You talk about the logistics and training. I mean, that could have been like 30 people. Now, people who executed that was a smaller number. But we talk about training, logistics, all of that, all of the above. It was like a handful of people. Imagine if there's 100,000 uh, terrorists in our country, just 100,000. They could take down our whole country. But, you know, I don't, I don't understand what Democrats are arguing. I don't understand why our country is even having an argument whatsoever about illegal immigration. It's very simple. We need to secure the border of the United States of America. We need to make sure that we know who's coming in our southern border. That's the reason we have a border. Therefore, terrorists don't get through. People with diseases that we, we haven't even encountered yet aren't getting through. All of these things should be issues that both parties should be getting along on. Because it's not racist for you to want to secure the border. It's not you you hate Mexicans, which Mexican is not a race. It's people that just come from Mexico. I mean, you could be you could be black or you be Mexican if you come from Mexico. Anyway, I'm not gonna even go there. Ain't that ain't that fun ain't that funny though? Everywhere else in the world, you are considered that no matter what color you are. But in America, somehow you're black, white, green. You know, it's just stupid to me. If you're from American soil, you're an American. That's all that we should be talking about. Just like if you're from Mexico, you're a Mexican. Anyway, I can go down a list, but I'm not. We should not be having an argument whatsoever about the southern border. We should secure the border. Our argument should be whether or not we allow immigration or not, that can be a legitimate argument. Maybe Republicans think we should stop immigration altogether, which I've never heard a Republican make that. I would, let me not say I never heard a Republican make that argument. It doesn't seem to be a mainstream a thought process with majority of Republicans that we should end immigration altogether. We should be having a debate after our border is secured. Do we want merit-based immigration? Do we want unlimited immigration? Do we want immigration that is diversified, which means that we allow people from Mexico and from Africa to come here.
We don't discriminate because it's convenient to come to our southern border. That, well, I guess 2.2 million people can just come here because they're close to us. We, if, if our government was having those arguments, uh, debates, discussions, I think it's. I still think it's it's mind blowing that we would have even discussions like that. But it's more reasonable than trying to argue whether or not we should let people just flood into our country. We are literally being invaded, and nobody's talking about it. And then when something happens, something occurs in this country, and we have to go look back and say, well, it's because they came through the southern border. Potentially, we have to blame Joe Biden. And, you know, are they going to be willing to do that? I'm not sure. But we need to have more genuine conversations in our country. And I think we're just not doing it. Everybody's so partisan. Everybody's towing the line. One thing that, that makes me different than a lot of other people is that I don't tow the line. Because I don't even know what the line is. I don't waste my time trying to say, oh, I guess because I'm a Republican, I got to think like this. I'm like, man, look, this, this is the way I see it. This is the way I call it. I call it like I see it. There's some things that Republicans do that I think is completely stupid. But just because I'm considered, I'm registered Republican don't mean I have to acquiesce or believe everything Republicans do and think that everything they do is right. And I don't have to believe everything Democrats do is wrong. It's just that most of the stuff they do is wrong. And that's why I talk about it. You don't, I don't have to be a monolith. I don't have to only think one way. And I get backlash from time to time. People get mad at me. Be tell them I'm not following you no more. To me, it's irrelevant, but some people like to say that to me because they don't like the fact that I, I, I buck up against the Republican side when it's necessary or when it's something I believe in. Coming up, looking ahead to the 2024 election. We've got to find candidates that not only can win primaries, but can win general elections. Montana Senator and Chairman of the NRSC this cycle, Steve Daines, in the final segment of the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Georgine Rice. This week in the Christian Outlook, sponsored by the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Senator James Langford of Oklahoma recognizes participants in the 50th anniversary March for Life. They've gathered them in the mall and they just said, we believe every child is valuable. And we'll look at the motives of those who marched. Really, the tone was very much, we're celebrating that Roe v. Wade is overturned, but our work isn't done. The challenge the pro-life cause faced in the recent election. Democrats spent $360 million on abortion-related ads in the fall, and Republicans spent $37 million. And Ryan Anderson on the role of marriage in the abortion equation. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Be sure to join us and visit our website at ChristianOutlook.com. Welcome back to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. I'm Dwayne Patterson. So many of the very serious problems and the very serious threats that our nation is facing today will only change in substantive ways at the ballot box. That's why Hugh, as I mentioned earlier in the program, is engaged in the meetings of the RNC, the Republican National Committee. Another key piece of GOP leadership for 2024 is the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Montana Senator Steve Daines is the chairman for this coming cycle. He joined Hugh to talk about the Senate map for 2024. Tell us about your plans for the NRSC this year. 
Well, Hugh, um, as you mentioned, the map does look good. It is a very good map for Republicans, but we can't fall in love with the map. We've got some formidable Democrats that are uh, serving in red states, but the, you know, the top three target states will be Montana, West Virginia, Ohio. We've got John Tester, Joe Manchin, and Sherrod Brown. These are states where statewide Democrats have lost over the years. There's only one statewide elected official in Montana that's a Democrat. That's John Tester. There's only one statewide elected official in West Virginia. That's Joe Manchin. There's only one statewide elected official that's a Democrat in Ohio. That's Sherrod Brown. And so they're really endangered species at the moment. And uh, you look at it as a presidential year uh, with the presidential election going on, Montana is going to vote for the Republican presidential candidate by 15 to 20 points, West Virginia by 35 to 40 points, Ohio by 7 to 10 points. So we start with an incredible pickup opportunity with those three states. Now, now, Senator, uh, this is controversial what I'm about to ask you. I don't expect a, a complete answer yet. I want the NRSC to play in primaries. What is the NRSC's position going to be about participating early and identifying a candidate who is the strongest candidate who can win and funding them before the primary vote? Yeah. Well, Hugh, if there's something that we learned from the 22 cycle is that we've got to get candidates that can win a primary, but importantly, can win a general election. I'm sick and tired of losing. And at the end of the day, winners make policy and losers go home. We've got to find candidates that not only can win primaries, but can win general elections. So it's still very early, but it's not lost on us that we will do whatever it takes to win to make sure that in 24 we have a Republican majority. Here's why as well. If you look a little bit longer term, look through the end of the decade. If you look at the 24 cycle, the 26 cycle, and the 28 cycle, in 2024, as I mentioned earlier, we have three Democrats up in red states. Those are great pickup opportunities. But you look at 26, there are zero. You look at 28, there are zero. Hugh, we either deliver a majority in 24 or we could see the United States Senate with an enduring minority as Republicans for the rest of the decade. The stakes could not be higher. It's very important we win general elections. Thanks for joining us for the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt. Catch up on earlier episodes at our website, townhallreview.com. Special thanks to executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pouchon, Michael Cook, Tim Gantner, and Adam Ramsey. And let me say thanks once again to our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. I'm Dwayne Patterson. Thank you for joining us for Town Hall Review. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.